Now let's turn to Martin Luther's favorite epistle, the letter to the Galatians. The epistle to the Galatians. In many ways, this is the most colorful epistle or book in the whole of the New Testament. It's filled with very vivid and vigorous language. And if you read it through this afternoon, I'm sure you were struck by that fact. It's been so long since we began this series on Through the Bible, book by book, relating it to the central message of the scriptures, that perhaps it would be well if I would introduce this by a little review of where we are in our progress through the Bible. Remember, we divided first the Bible into its natural divisions of Old and New Testament, and tried to find what each of these divisions contributes to the great and supreme message of the Scriptures. I wonder if you'll recall what that message is. Essentially, it's that the whole of the revelation of God, the whole of the Bible, in other words, is given that you might be a complete human being in Christ. That's its aim. You, complete in Christ, a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself, to put it in the language of the Apostle Paul, uh, that you might experience all God's intention when he made man in the beginning. And uh, this is why the Bible was, was given to us. Now, the Old Testament contributes to that uh, the note of preparation. It lays the groundwork for all of this. The New Testament contributes the note of realization. It actually confronts us with the person of Jesus Christ, who is himself God's program and plan for making life complete for us. And uh, in the New Testament, there are several divisions. Remember, the Gospels with the book of Acts present Jesus Christ to us. Uh, One... uh, each gospel giving a different aspect of his life, and then the book of Acts coming in and tying into that the present manifestation of Jesus Christ in his body, the church, in the world today. This is Christ at work, Christ in human life. Then the epistles give us the explanation of Jesus Christ, his work, his person, his meaning, the meaning of his work and of his person, All that is involved in this spelled out for us that we might understand it and grasp it. Those epistles, on the other hand, recall, are divided into three major groups. There are, there's the first uh, four of them which uh, link up with the truth or express the truth. Uh, You in Christ. What it means, or rather Christ in you. Christ in us. That's Romans and uh, First and Second Corinthians and Galatians. So we've come, you see, to the last of that first division, first group of the epistles of the New Testament, expressing the truth, Christ in us, what it means to have Jesus Christ living in us. The second division, encompassing the rest of the epistles of the New Testament, gather, uh, that is, uh, up to the epistle of Hebrews, gathers around the theme, you in Christ. What it means that we are made part of his body. And these are the epistles that explain the work of the church and the uh, aspects of the life of the church. 
And then the third group of letters, beginning with the letter to the Hebrews and including James and Peter and John and Jude, are the letters that describe the operative word of faith, what faith is, how it works, why it suffers, what it faces, and so on. Because faith is the means by which all that Christ is in us and we have in him is made manifest in our experience. Then the last division of the New Testament is the book of Revelation standing by itself as the great consummation of what Christ has come into the world to do and uh, describes for us that great scene when all will be ended, all the work of redemption accomplished. Now there you have it, and I hope that helps again as we come to this letter of the Galatians. Any of you who have read this little letter carefully will notice that it's very closely related to the epistle to the Romans as well as to the epistle to the Hebrews. These three letters of the New Testament form what might be regarded as an inspired commentary on a single verse out of the Old Testament, out of the letter to the, uh, uh, that is the uh, book of Habakkuk. Remember, it was that Old Testament prophet to whom God gave the great truth that the just shall live by faith. And you have that verse quoted in these three of the New Testament epistles, in Romans, and in Galatians, and in Hebrews. All three of these quote that verse, the just shall live by faith. And it's interesting that each of them gives a different aspect or a different emphasis to the verse. In Romans, you have the emphasis upon the words, the just, the righteous, what it means to be righteous, how a man becomes justified before God, declared righteous in Christ. And that, remember, was the, was the epistle that finally delivered Martin Luther from the bondage of a terrible legalism. The just is in Romans. Then in Galatians, as we'll look at tonight, you have the emphasis upon the word shall live. What it means to live as a righteous person, justified in Christ. And, and this is the letter of, of liberty, which is the fullest expression of life. Then in the epistle to the Hebrews, you have the last two words emphasized, by faith. And there's the great letter on faith, culminating, you remember, in that great section called the, the, the Heroes of Faith in chapter 11. Uh, the just shall live by faith. Now, Galatians takes up the question then, what is a real, what real Christian life is like? And it answers it with one word, liberty. The Christian is called to liberty in Jesus Christ. Freedom to the utmost extent possible to the human spirit. Set free from every restraint other than that designed by God himself, which is necessary to our existence. And the cry of this uh, epistle then is that, Christians might discover the liberty of the sons of God, all that God planned in terms of freedom and enjoyment. This has called, been called, therefore, the Bill of Rights of the Christian life, or the Magna Carta of Christian liberty, the Emancipation Declaration from all forms of legality and bondage in the Christian experience. As you look at this letter, 
we read the introduction. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. This is not a letter written to a single church, as is the case in Corinth and Ephesus and so on. This is a letter addressed to a number of churches. Who were these Galatians? Well, if you'll read the 13th and 14th chapters of the book of Acts, you'll have the story of the background of these churches. These were the churches begun when Paul, on his very first missionary journey, traveling, remember, with Barnabas, came into the cities of Antioch and Derbe and Lystra and Iconium. And there he was stoned on one occasion, dragged outside the city and left for dead. Uh, after having been first welcomed and treated as a god visiting the city. And uh, in all of these cities, he experienced persecution. Now, these were the cities of Galatia. And the name comes from the same root word that, uh, as the word Gauls, the G- Gauls, G-A-U-L-S. And if you took Latin in school, remember that you began your reading of Julius Caesar with the words, uh, uh, I don't know if I can recall it all now, Pontus, Pontus Gallio and three parts divisa est, all Gaul in three parts is divided. <laughs> and Gaul, remember there, refers to France. France is ancient Gaul. Uh, and these were the same people, these Galatians. About 300 bef- years before Christ, the Gauls in France had invaded the Roman Empire and had sacked the city of Rome. And then they crossed over into uh, northern Greece and coming down through, they crossed uh, the, the, uh, the Dardanelles Straits and into Asia Minor. And they were invited to settle in this area by one of the kings of that region. So some 300 years before Christ, a group of the Gauls from northern Europe had come down into here and settled in this area. These were not, these were not Arabs or the usual kind of Orientals. They were a Celtic race, the ancestors also of the Scots and the Irish, the Britons and the French. Now since most Americans are of this ancestry, this letter is particularly for us. And you'll believe that when you read Uh, For instance, Julius Caesar's description of the Gauls. This is the way he describes them. The infirmity of the Gauls, he says, is that they are fickle in their resolves, fond of change, and not to be trusted. (laughs) Or as another one put it, another ancient writer, they are frank, impetuous, impressible, eminently intelligent, fond of show, but extremely inconstant, the fruit of excessive vanity. Doesn't that sound like American? (laughs) Most of the world would agree with that. Now, among these Gauls, the Apostle Paul had gone, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He had stayed for some time on his second journey. Recall that after he had visited these cities, he came back to Antioch, and then uh, he and and, uh, Silas, this time, instead of Barnabas, set out to go back through these cities and visit these churches that had been established. And on that occasion, he stayed considerable time in these various cities because of sickness. 
he refers to this in a rather oblique manner in this epistle, but evidently it was some kind of serious eye trouble. For he says to these Galatians, remember when I came, he said, I bear witness of you that you would have, have taken out your own eyes and given them to me, if you could. So that evidently he had some kind of eye trouble. And uh, it, some, some biblical scholars feel that it made him rather repulsive. He had inflamed, pus-filled eyes that made him almost repulsive at times. But these Galatians, as Paul admits in this letter, received him with great joy, treating him as though he were an angel of God, or even a Christ Jesus himself, he says. And they reveled in the gospel of grace that he brought because he had set forth before them with amazing vividness the glory and work of the crucified Lord. And they had entered thereby into the fullness of life in the Spirit, and they had received the love and the joy and the peace that Jesus Christ entering the heart gives. But when he wrote this letter, probably from the city of Corinth, something had happened. Certain people whom Paul recalls, uh, labels in another place, wolves in sheep's clothing, had come among them. Certain Judaizers had come down from Jerusalem with what Paul calls an alien gospel. That is, it wasn't a, a different gospel, but it was a perversion of the true gospel. And these Judaizers were declaring to these Gentile believers in Jesus Christ, in the freshness of their newfound faith, that in order to grow and really become genuine Christians, they needed, they would have to become circumcised and keep the law of Moses and obey all the Old Testament ritual. And they were trying to impose upon these people all the restrictions and the ceremonial obligations of the law of Moses. Now, they hadn't set Jesus Christ aside. Very few Gospels that have any chance of success ever do that. But they had given him a second place. They said the chief thing is keeping the law. Furthermore, they had challenged the, uh, the apostolic uh, authority of the Apostle Paul. They pointed out that he was an independent and very undependable and overly enthusiastic and that he had graduated from the wrong seminary. And so they were trying to get these people to reject the authority of the apostle. Now, Paul was greatly disturbed by this news. As you read this letter, you can see that he is, he is moved and agitated to the utmost. Listen to some of these expressions here in verse 8 of the first chapter. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. Or to put it as bluntly as Paul put it, let him be damned, he says. Let him be damned. And he repeats it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which we you received, let him be damned. Not because he was simply hurling uh, acrimonious uh, uh, challenges or insults here. He's just simply facing the fact that anybody who comes with a different gospel is already damned himself. He hasn't found the truth. 
and those apart from Christ are accursed, as the apostle makes clear both in this letter and many other places. And then later on in the close of the letter, his emotions are stirred again, and he's so concerned about these people who are trying to get them to be circumcised, Again, and to bear in their flesh the marks of the law. And in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would mutilate themselves. Literally emasculate themselves. Since they're so all fired, wrought up to try to get some mark in the flesh in you. All right, he said, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You can see now something of the of the fire that flashes throughout this letter. The apostle is deeply disturbed. He has his war paint on. And he wastes no time with pleasantries or personal greetings here. But he moves right into the matter at hand. With vigor and with vehemence. In fact, he can't even wait for his secretary. But as he tells us in the latter part of the letter, he scratches it all out in painful Large letters in his own handwriting, despite his poor eyesight. Well, what's the theme of the letter? What has got him so upset? He tells us in verse 3 of the first chapter. This is the theme of Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God the Father, that is 3 and 4. From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's what's disturbed him. This perverted gospel, this legalistic approach to Christianity is destroying those two great truths that are inherent in the gospel, the true gospel. Christ gave himself for our sins. That's justification. Second, to deliver us from this present evil age, that's sanctification. And all of it is by grace and not by works. And it's the, uh, it's the assault upon those truths that has so deeply disturbed the apostle. He knows that anything that challenges these things is a false gospel that will lead its victim out into bondage and, uh, and desolation of spirit and heartache and, uh, and bondage of every kind and ultimately spiritual death. And so he's disturbed. Now, let's take these. Actually, these two divide the letter up. In uh, chapters 1 through 4, he handles this great matter of justification by faith. Christ died for our sins, who gave himself for our sins. And uh, all this is, is of course, the basic de- declaration of the gospel. The good news is that Christ has borne our sins. That's always good news. And therefore, he spends the first chapter defending the gospel, this, this good news. And he shows that it was revealed by, by Jesus Christ directly to him. He didn't get it from any man. He didn't get it from the church. He didn't get it from the apostles. Christ himself appeared to him and told him this good news. And second, it was acknowledged by the other apostles as being the same ones they had received. This, by the way, 
is one of the answers to what is called hyper-dispensationalism in our day. There are certain ones who claim that Paul had a different gospel than Peter and James and John and the other, and that his gospel is superior to theirs. But Paul himself in this letter says that when he at last, 14 years after his conversion, went up to Jerusalem and had an opportunity to compare notes with the other apostles there, they were amazed to discover that this man, who had never been part of the original twelve, knew as much about the truth of the gospel as they did. In fact, he knew what went on in the secret, intimate uh, gatherings that they had had with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see an example of this in 1 Corinthians, in the uh, 11th chapter, where the apostle is speaking of the Lord's Supper, and he says, I delivered unto you that which I also received from Christ. How that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and gave thanks and so on. Now, how did Paul know that? Well, he said, I received it from the Lord Jesus. And when James and Peter and John heard that this man knew as much about what went on in that upper room as they did, they recognized that here indeed was a man called of God. And his apostleship therefore rested upon that fact. Third, it was not only revealed to him by Christ and acknowledged by the other apostles, but it had been vindicated when Peter came down to Antioch. And Peter, Peter, the one who was... Uh, supposedly the head of the apostles was all fouled up in Antioch. You can read the story. I'm not going into it, but it was all over the matter of eating kosher versus Gentile foods. And Peter had been a Jew. Remember, had been raised to eat nothing but the kosher foods. But when he became a Christian, he went and ate with the Gentiles and thus uh, indicated the liberty that he had in Christ. But when certain ones came down from Jerusalem, he began to compromise, and back he went to eating with the Jews only, and thus he denied the very liberty that he had formerly proclaimed. And this is what stirred Paul, and he withstood Peter to his face. Think of that. This man who was a, a, a maverick apostle coming in and challenging Peter to his face. But he vindicates the gospel as such. And then he went on in chapters 3 and 4 to show us that the gospel is first first by faith and not of works. These are great passages. I hope you'll read them through carefully. These are what delivered Martin Luther. The gospel is by faith in the work of one who has already done it all, not by the works that we ourselves employ. Second, it was by promise and not by law. Abraham was given the promise 400 years before the law came. The law, therefore, cannot change it. The promise of God stands true whether the law comes in or not. And third, he shows that those who are in Christ are sons, not slaves. They're no longer servants, but they're part of the family of God. And here he deals with the great allegory, allegorical passages concerning Haggai, uh, Haggai and Sarah and the law and, uh, and the uh, Mount of Grace. So that uh, in these passages he declares the great fact of justification by faith. Now you see, 
all that is wrapped up in that little verse, who gave himself for our sins. Jesus Christ has paid the price himself. He didn't send an angel. No angel could our place have taken, highest of the high, though he. The one who on the cross was forsaken was one of the Godhead three. And it was this that delivered the soul of Martin Luther. Next month we celebrate the 450th anniversary of the day when the monk of Wittenberg uh, strode up and nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church there and began what is we call the Protestant Reformation. Here was a man who had tried his very level best to find his way to heaven according to the pathway of works. He had done everything the, the church of his day suggested. He had tried fasting and indulgences and the sacraments and the intercession of the saints and uh, penances and confession and had, uh, had endured long night vigils and heavy days of labor. He had done everything he could, but the harder he worked, the more his inner distress increased. Until just absolutely desperate, he went, remember, to the head of the order, the Augustinian order, of which he was a monk, and asked for some kind of release. And the dear old man, not knowing very much, told him all that he could. He said, put your faith not upon yourself, but in the wounds of Christ. And that was a dim ray of light that began to break through into Martin Luther's soul. And to recall, it wasn't until he was... He was preparing lectures on the Psalms uh, for his students in his little room in the tower that uh, the full light began to break upon him when he was struck by a verse in the Psalms that said, In thy righteousness deliver us. And uh, this gripped Martin Luther's heart because the righteousness of God to him was a terrible thing. That unbendable, righteous judgment by which God would uh, destroy everyone who failed in the least degree to measure up to the full expectation of holiness that God had. The righteousness of, of God was a terrible thought to Martin Luther. He says he hated the word. But then as he, as he began to investigate the word, it led him to the Epistle to the Romans, where he read the words, The righteous shall live by faith. And that struck fire in his heart. And he saw for the first time that another one had paid the penalty. Christ himself had entered the human race and borne the guilt of our sins, that God might in justice accept us, not on our merits, but his. When that truth broke upon Martin Luther's heart, he was never the same man again. And that started him challenging all the indulgences and all the other um, uh, legalistic bondage of the Roman church and caused him at last to nail the thesis to the door there. It's interesting, isn't it, as someone has pointed out, that every single religion known to man is a religion of works except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hinduism tells us that uh, if we renounce the world and relate ourselves to the, to the uh, uh, 
the spirit of the universe, uh, we'll find our way at last to peace. Buddhism sets before us the eight principles by which we're to, a man is to walk and thus find himself at last on the way to salvation. Judaism says we must keep the law absolutely inflexibly firm and then we'll be saved. And Islam says that we, a man must pray five times a day and give alms and fast on the month of Ramadan and obey the commands of Allah. All the way of works. Uh, uh, Unitarianism says that man is saved by having a good character. Modern humanism says it's by service to mankind. But in every case, you see, it's something we have to do. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has done it. He alone has done what no man can do and sets us free in that way. Now, in chapters 5 and 6, the apostle turns to the second and very important aspect of this great truth. Uh, summarized in the words of verse 4, that he might deliver us from this present evil age. You see, Christianity is not merely going to heaven when you die. It's also how to live now in this present life. And it's that we might be set free from the controlling uh, uh, factor of the world and its ways, its evil and its wickedness in our life now. That we might be delivered from this present evil age right now. And that too is by the gift of Jesus Christ. And here is where the apostle waxes hot again upon these Galatians. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, you simple-minded people, do you really think that you can begin in the spirit and then proceed by means of the flesh and accomplish your perfection? Why, it's all of, the, of faith, all by the power of God that the Christian life is lived. And he goes on to develop this. He shows us in chapters 5 and 6 that the gospel, that liberty in Christ, the life of freedom, must not be lost through legalism, nor is it to be abused through license. That is, it doesn't give us the right to do anything we like, any way we like. That's as much, uh, that's as much uh, bondage as the other but that it's to be expressed in loving service for one another. And yet it's life, you see. All legalists essentially sum up their faith this way. They say sincerity plus activity equals life. And you can test that on any other re any religious experience in the world. And if it's not the gospel of the grace of God, that's what it says in one way or another. Sincerity... That's faith plus activity equals life as God intended it to be lived. Salvation, whatever you want to call it. But the truth is, you see, quite the opposite. It says that life plus faith equals activity. That's an entirely different thing. We work not in order to be saved or in order to be blessed by God. But we work because we share the life of Jesus Christ in us. And here's where Galatianism is still found today. 
We're not in danger of being asked to be circumcised or to observe the Sabbath. There are groups that do this, but essentially this is no danger to us. Or even to be delivered from legalistic ideas like keeping Lent and holy days and rituals and so forth, which is one form, modern form of Galatianism. But what we're in grave danger of forgetting is that Christ himself in us came to deliver us from this present evil age. And he does it by living his life in us. That's the key. We know that this age is evil. We feel its pressures to conform, to lower our standards, to believe all these lies that are shouted us on at us on TV and radio and billboards and magazines and conversations everywhere. And the danger is that we think we can be delivered from the grip of these by setting up Christian programs, by filling our time with activities and teaching in the Sunday school and playing the organ and leading in the young people's groups and joining Christian clubs and taking part in meetings. And this is what keeps us free. Now, you see, that's Galatianism. Same kind of bondage that the apostle wrote about. And that will deaden and dampen the spirit of an individual and bring him into bondage. Just as much as it did in that day. But you see the truth as Paul brings out in these last two chapters of Galatians. Is that Christ lives in us. By the spirit. And produces his life in us. Therefore... The whole of the Christian walk is to repudiate the life of the flesh with its self-centeredness and to rely upon the work of the Spirit of God to reproduce in us the life of Jesus Christ. How beautifully all this is gathered up, you remember, in the, le- in the verse that's perhaps the best known verse of this whole letter, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, not I, see, not any longer the self-centered I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The old self-centered I has been crucified with Christ, so that it has no longer any right to live. And your task and my task is to see that it doesn't live, that it's repudiated, that it's put aside with its, its, its uh, uh, determination to express what he calls in chapter 5 here, the works of the flesh. Listen to them. Impurity, immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery. By the way, that's the word that's linked with pharmaceutical things, drugs it means, such as LSD and other things would be involved in that. Uh, Enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, uh, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. All of that, the works of the flesh, the old self-centered life which he says was judged and cut off in the cross and replaced by the life of Jesus Christ and a dependence therefore on him to live in us and a willingness to let it be done and to move in that direction results in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, 
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there's no law at all. Now that's where Christian liberty comes in, you see. You haven't begun to live as God intended you to live until the fruit of the Spirit is a consistent manifestation in your life. And anything less is the bondage of legalism with its dullness and its apathy, its indifference and its death. And then he closes here with this wonderful sixth chapter in which he describes how this will result in in bearing one another's burdens, restoring one another in meekness, in gentleness of spirit, not in judgment, not in harshness. In uh, uh, giving liberally and freely to one another's needs and in patient continuance and well-being and well-doing and sowing to the spirit instead of to the flesh. And finally, the apostle closes on one of the most personal notes in the whole New Testament. He says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand, painfully scratching it out despite his poor eyesight. He says, I don't want a glory in your flesh like these Judaizers do. They love to get people uh, circumcised because it is another scalp they can hang on their belt as a sign that they have done something tremendous for God. That's not my glory, he says. I glory in the cross of Christ, which cuts off that kind of living, cuts it right off at the roots, cuts off the old man with all its ways of self-seeking and ambition and self-glory, and uh, which crucifies me unto the world and the world unto me. That's my glory. And now he says, don't let anybody of you write to me and tell me that this is all wrong. Because he said, I want you to know that in carrying out this kind of life, it's been costly. I have, I have earned the persecution of many. I bear in my body, he says, the marks of the Lord Jesus. If you challenge the world in its ways, you're going to find that there will be those who are resentful of the way you live and the way you think. And there will be some who will be active in their antagonism and some who are ready to burn you at the stake if they get a chance because you're defying the accepted standards of life. You're setting aside the principle upon which the world seeks to accomplish its aims. You're judging them and they resent it. But the apostle says, it doesn't make any difference to me. The thing I glory in is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taught me what true liberty is, what it means to be a son of the living God, and to live my life in the freedom and the joyfulness of knowing Jesus personally himself. Well, that's the epistle to the Galatians. I think it is beautifully summed up in this in this poem that is well known to many of you, once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now himself alone.
Once twas painful trying, now tis perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once was constant drifting, now my anchor's cast. Once was busy planning, now tis trustful prayer. Once twas anxious caring, now he has the care. Once twas what I wanted, now what Jesus says. Once twas constant asking, now tis ceaseless praise. Once it was my working, his it hence shall be. Once I tried to use him, now he uses me. Once the power I wanted, now the mighty one. Once for self I labored, now for him alone. Once I hoped in Jesus, now I know he's mine. Once my lamps were dying, now they brightly shine. Once for death I waited, now his coming hail. And my hopes are anchored safe within the veil. That's the liberty that is in Christ Jesus. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Our Father, how this letter challenges us in these lukewarm days in which we live, where men and women talk much about commitment, but very seldom evidence it. We pray that we may be captured by these words and see once again that life is not worth the living if it be not lived for Christ, that the deceitfulness of our hearts must be judged in the light of thy word, that we not be content with mere uh, expression, but only with that which comes from the reality of thy spirit at work in us. Produce in our lives, O great Spirit of God, that blessed fruit that glorifies the Father and deny within us and help us to repudiate that which has been crucified and set aside in Jesus Christ, that we may receive from him all that he has provided. We ask in his name. Amen.